0: Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Meadowview Weekly Sermon Podcast. We're a church who seeks to grow in Christ, gather in community, and go in obedience to the Great Commission. All right, good morning, church. Good to see. you. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn with me to Mark chapter ten. And uh, you're going to need it this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab a black one that should be there in the pew. And if you need a Bible, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take that today. Uh, Today, we're going to look at holiness in heaven. Uh, This is the third week we've talked about holiness. And uh, we're going to pick up um, verse 17. So uh, you may not realize this, but uh, this is week 23 of the Gospel of Mark. So we've been kind of just... Going along, I have no idea how many weeks there's going to be. I'm just going to be honest with you. But this is week 23, and we've only had one other sermon that was a standalone sermon for Father's Day. So uh, that leads me to do the calculation, and that means 24 weeks since this whole pandemic thing hit, because that's when we started the book. So we're almost halfway through a year. Hang in there, people, right? Like, just hang in there. It's only going to get better. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. All right, so Mark chapter ten. This is a familiar passage for a lot of us. Uh, It's it's found in all three synoptic gospels: Matthew chapter nineteen, here in Mark ten, and Luke chapter eighteen. It's the story of the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler. He comes up and he has a question about salvation. He wants to know about what must I do to be saved. Now, this idea of salvation, back uh, in the Hebrew term, means uh, to move into or be brought into a spacious environment. Uh, to find freedom and uh, from limitations or deliverance from factors that constrain you or confine you. Maybe you've had a moment where you felt like you were saved from something. You were confined and you were you were held captive by something. And then all of a sudden someone came and they you said, oh, you saved me. Uh, we were talking last week as, as the elders were praying, we were talking about car wrecks for some reason. I don't know why we were talking about car wrecks. And they were like, oh, Jeff, you have a good car wreck story. And so I was going to tell it to you. Uh, When I was 16 years old, it was raining. It was a morning. I was on my way to school. I was going the speed limit. And, um, you know, I was just trying to get there. And I hydroplaned. And when I hydroplaned, I slid underneath an 18-wheeler and into its back trailer tires, which crushed my car and then threw me into a ditch. And so this lady ran up on the scene and she ran over to me and the whole car was kind of crumpled around me. And she said, son, are you okay? And I responded, "Ugh." that's all I could get out. Cause I was like the whole car had kind of crumpled. And so before too long, you know, the, the EMTs and the, the first responders got there and they used this nice little tool called the jaws of life. And Pried me out of the car and put me on a gurney and sent me off to get x-rays for the next four hours of my life it was so much fun I was fine it was all good and uh and the worst part is my mom showed up right to the car wreck scene and about that time they were covering me up so that I wouldn't get any more glass on me and she was like (laughs) they're like he's not dead he's fine yeah he's, he's good so I felt like I got saved from the car, right? They brought me out of the car and brought me to, <laughs> out of the confined space. And so this guy, he runs up to Jesus and he has this question. He's like, look, I need to know what I must do to be saved. So he comes and he asks this question, but he, he asks it from more of a, a selfish point of view, not from a dependent point of view. And really what he's asking is, what behavior modifications do I need to make so that I can get into heaven. What behavior modifications do I have to make? What do I need to do so that, hey, when it all happens, you're like, yep, you're getting in. So this is recorded in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit, to get eternal life? Luke 18, 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And here in Mark 10, verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a fantastic question. What's interesting about this is this is not a parable, this is not some allegory with a moral lesson, this is an actual event. This is an actual story recorded in all three synoptic Gospels to tell us that there was a man who ran up to Jesus, who had everything going on for him in his life, and he asked a very important question, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus did not respond with, well, let's pray this prayer. If you'll repeat this prayer after me, you can be saved. If you'll walk down this aisle, if you'll do this thing. No, he, he gave him a really hard truth, and the really hard truth exposed the idol that was in this man's life. You see, the message that we usually hear from the church is that we need to repent of our wickedness, and that's true. There are things in our lives that do not belong in the Christian life, but rarely do we hear that we need to repent from our goodness. And this man, he thought he was good. And when he encountered Jesus, Jesus calls him out for the idolatry that he had disguised with goodness. A lot of time the idolatry that we hold is disguised by the good works that we do. In modern Christianity, idolatry is often disguised by good works. As we read this encounter, we see that fallen, sinful, self-centered beings can distort the call of Christianity by making it about what must I do. That's a difficult truth. I like what John MacArthur says, and I'm quoting him just because he seems to be in the news lately. And I like that. The gospel, if you don't know, look it up. You'll, you'll think it's funny. The gospel that Jesus proclaimed was a call to discipleship. A call to follow him in submissive obedience. Not just a plea to make a decision or pray a prayer. Jesus' message liberated people from the bondage of their sin while he confronted and condemned their hypocrisy. It was an offer of eternal life and forgiveness for repentant sinners. But at the same time, it was a rebuke to outwardly religious people whose lives were devoid of true righteousness. Anyone who claims to be a Christian can find evangelicals willing to accept a profession of faith, whether or not the person's behavior shows any evidence of a commitment to Christ. In this way, faith has become merely an intellectual exercise. Instead of calling men and women to surrender to Christ, modern evangelism asks them only to accept some basic facts about him. This shallow understanding of salvation and the gospel, known as easy believism, stands in stark contrast to what the Bible teaches. To put it simply, the gospel call to faith presupposes that sinners must repent of their sin and yield to Christ's authority. This man, he runs up to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And he's given an answer, and he doesn't really like the answer. You see, Jesus can't just be an add-on to our life. He has to have all of our life. The message of this rich young ruler is a message to repent of our goodness and to repent of the idols that we've disguised by our good works. This is a message to good husbands and good wives. This is a message to good fathers good mothers. It's a message to good small group leaders, good church-going individuals, both in person and, hey, online. Good, moral, righteous men and women who externally meet the standards of goodness, but internally hold an idol greater than Jesus. So repenting of our goodness means we repent of me-centered living disguised as Christ-centered living. Can I say that again? Repenting of our goodness means that we repent of me-centered living disguised as Christ-centered living. Behavioral modification disguises the fact that there are other things that sit central of our heart. So there's three idols I want to talk about today. You're going to love these. People love it when you call out idols. The first one's goodness. The second one's materialism. And the last one's family. See, idols are simply good things that we've made God things. So, number one, idols control you. I want you to understand this: idols control you. The first step in recognizing an idol is to look at your calendar and your cash. What controls you? Where do you spend the most time and the most money? Secondly, idols consume you. Not only do they control you, they consume you. The second step to recognize what identifies is to recognize what identifies you. Does a certain person, place, habit, hobby, possession, position give you the identity you desire? Do you find self-worth in what has been created or the creator? And finally, idols condemn you. They seek to control you, consume you, and eventually they'll condemn you. That's exactly what we see in the story. The third step is to imagine life without the thing that you allow to control your calendar and your cash. And imagine life without that which you identify in. So let me pray, and then we'll jump in to today's scripture. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the true eyewitness accounts of interactions that you've had. God, speak to us today. Reveal your word to us by your spirit. Speak a truth to us that would lead us towards repentance, that you would put the magnifying glass on the things of our life that we allow to supersede our love for you. Help us not to hide behind our goodness and our good works and our religious acts. God, help us to fall on our face before you, willing to submit, willing to offer you all that we have. Because you are worth it. In Christ's name, amen. First thing, the idol of goodness distorts our judgment. So the idol of goodness distorts our judgment. Let's start reading Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. We use it in a comparative sense. So when we use it in a comparative sense, we distort what is truly right and wrong. Let me give you two examples. If you'll go to your Facebook page or if you'll go to Instagram or your Twitter, you might notice that there are polarizing opinions about what is good and what is bad when it comes to politics. That's as far as I'm going with that illustration. Okay, so you might notice that, that there's a relative idea of what's good and what's bad. Let me give you a better one. I've told you that my dog is the best dog in the world. Am I right? I have the best little dog. She's a good dog. And every time she runs up to me, I say, oh, what a good girl. Y'all, know that. Y'all talk like that too to your pets. Don't act like you don't. Oh, what a good girl. You're such a good girl. And I talk to her and I tell her she's good. That doesn't mean she's morally excellent. It does mean that she's better than your dog, right? Like That's what it means. Like, she's better than your dog. She minds. She comes when I call her. She jumps on the door when she needs to go out. She doesn't chew my shoes. I mean, she's a good dog, I really lucked out with that purchase, right? Like That was a good one. You never know what you're going to get when you buy a puppy. So she's good. So basically, this rich young man, he assumes, hey, I'm good. Jesus, you're a good teacher. We got a lot of things in common. Let's have a good conversation. This guy is known as a ruler so he's probably a jewish synagogue leader a jewish synagogue ruler so he even knows the law he's he's pretty much set up and he's going to ask him hey what must i do what good thing must i do to get to heaven so he said and jesus says in verse 18 and jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good except god alone so jesus takes this word good and he turns it back on him and he says look if you're going to make good a comparative issue then you need to compare it to god who's the only one who's good So Jesus leads this man back to the character and the conduct of God by pointing him to the commandments. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. He says, look, these are the things. And he says, look, I've kept these since I was a youth. He knew the commandments. He knew what was right and wrong. And in his mind, comparatively, he was good. But see, Jesus is using the law the way that was intended to be used, to point out the fact that you can't keep it. There's a conduct and a character, and it's the conduct and character of Christ that we will never meet. Even though we can look at other people and say, you know what, I'm good. I'm real good. The law was given to point out sin and our inability to keep the law in and of ourselves. The law points us to look for a Savior. It points us to look for Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans real quick. Romans chapter 7. Paul's going to talk about this real quick. I want you to see this in Scripture. Paul talks about the fact that the law exposes the sin that's really in our life. It points it out. So Romans chapter 7, starting at verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. He's like, look, this this is good right here. If you want to talk about the character and conduct of God, this is good. And this good thing exposed what bad thing is really in my life. This is what the law does. So Jesus takes this this ruler, this synagogue leader, this rich young man, all the way back to, all right, you you want to talk about good. I'll tell you what good is. Let Let me put you up against the law. And he says, look, I've kept all of that since I was a youth. Romans 3, if you flip over there to verses 10 and 12, says, As it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does, there it is, good. Not even one. This man, he doesn't realize that he's not good because he's compared himself to everyone else. Paul talks about this and uses himself as an example in Philippians chapter three. This might be familiar to you. If anyone thinks that he has reason or confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered and lost. Of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Paul, he said, Look, I was good. I, I will put my resume up against anybody else's. I was so good, but it was a goodness of my own that would, did not produce a righteousness. Jesus teaches this on the Sermon on the Mount. Remember we talked about that a few years back, we said, hey, it's better to be righteous than right. You can follow the right law and still not be a righteous person. You can still have evil and sin in your heart. Jesus teaches that rightness isn't the same as righteousness because we can be right in keeping the law on a surface level, which is what this young man did. But righteousness is only produced by the character of God, by the spirit of God. Matthew said, uh, Jesus said things in Matthew chapter 5 like, You've heard it said that those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable of judgment. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her, with her in his heart. Jesus raises this righteousness level based on what's on the inside. Verse 21, And Jesus looked at him, loved him. I love that. He loved him. He loved him enough to tell him the truth. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man, he had behavior modification. He was good, but it was hiding that inside he had an idol. And Jesus exposed it. Mark Sproul puts it this way. In essence, Jesus is saying to him, you say you've kept all the law? What about the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. Jesus knew that money was this man's God. He probably went to synagogue. Maybe he went to the temple for worship. But all week long, his mind was consumed with the questions of wealth. His money ranked ahead of God. The question he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, was answered. Jesus says, oh, you're good, but you're never going to be God. You're never going to be good enough. There's nothing that you can do to earn salvation. If you want to be good, if you want to be good enough to earn your salvation, then you better be as good as Jesus. Jesus is actually the rich young ruler in the story. I mean, think about this. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Think about this. The rich young ruler was God who left his throne in heaven and came to earth and was poor, He put on flesh. He had to endure the same things that we have to endure. He lived a sinless life. He he lived in our place and died a death that we should have died so that we could have his righteousness. Because apart from him, we are hopeless. We are helpless. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And there's no good works that we can do. And what he does to this man is he says, look, you want to know what good works you can do? You can never be good enough. If If you want to be equal to me, then go sell all your stuff exposing the idol that's in the life because he can't do it. I can never be good enough. And he walks away disheartened. Listen, this is a a story that's important for us because it means that you can come to the right person, Jesus. You can come and you can ask the right questions. You can come and you can pray a right prayer. You can follow the right rules and you can disguise your idolatry with your goodness. But if you really want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to identify the idol that stands in your way of obedience. If you really want to be a disciple who follows Jesus, you have to identify the idol that stands in your way of complete surrender and obedience. And Jesus exposed that in this man. And verse 22 says, disheartened. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Can I remind you that idols control you? This man was controlled by his calendar and his cash. Money dictated his life, not God. He was good, but he wasn't willing to make Jesus Lord. Idols consume you. He was known as the rich young ruler. He was identifying himself with what he possessed. His identity was wrapped up in what he owned. And to give up those possessions would be to give up himself. And eventually idols will condemn you. This man left disheartened because goodness was never going to be good enough. Second thing I want you to see through this section of Scripture is the idol of money. It distorts our desires. Let's pick up in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Look, salvation, if it's left up to man, is impossible, but with God it's possible. Jesus is pointing out the fact that God can overcome our idols. He can overcome the things that we put in our life ahead of him. You see, during this time frame, this rich young ruler would have been seen as somebody who was highly blessed by God. If he was a synagogue ruler, synagogue leader, not only does he keep the law, not only is he a good person, but he's also been blessed because he has so much financial wealth and materialism. He's seen as what would say they would say in the first century as, as prosperous because of God. And so... They had this distorted prosperity gospel idea. The idol that Jesus points out in this man's life is the idol that much of Western Christianity has ignored and justified and disguised with religious good works. You see, the prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. The prosperity gospel is a lie that worships a God that was made with an American imagination in hopes of the American dream. And we stamped Christianity on it. And he exposes it. John Piper says it this way, God is not glorified when we keep keep for ourselves what we ought to be using to alleviate the misery of the unevangelized, uneducated, unmedicated, and unfed millions. The evidence that many professing Christians have been deceived by this doctrine is how little they give and how much they own. God has prospered them by an almost irresistible law of consumer culture baptized by the doctrine of health, wealth, and prosperity. They have bought bigger and more houses, newer and more cars, fancier and more clothes, better and more meat, and all manner of trinkets and gadgets and containers and devices and equipment to make life way more fun. They will object. Does not the Old Testament promise that God will prosper his people? Indeed, God increases our yield so that by giving, we can prove that our yield is not our God. God does not prosper a man's business so that he can move from a Ford to a Cadillac. God prospers a business so that 17,000 unreached people can be reached with the gospel. He prospers the business so that 12% of the world's population can move a step back from the precipice of starvation. God blesses for his kingdom advance. And yet we're so deceived by the idol of wealth and materialism because wealth and materialism breeds self-confidence and self-reliance. The idol of wealth and materialism has an addictive quality to it where more is never enough. This is the world we live in. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other, You cannot serve God and money. You see, when the idol of wealth and materialism comes our primary, the things of God become secondary. Let me say that again. When the idol of wealth and materialism becomes our primary, the things of God become secondary. When we care more about building our kingdom, we inevitably begin to care less about his kingdom. This is why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 6-10, and verse 17, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into many snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us everything to enjoy. Verse 25, Jesus says it's easier for a camel To go through the eye of a needle, then for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's not talking about some gate that people say. He's actually using this analogy that it is literally impossible to stick a camel through the eye of a needle. And they were exceedingly astonished. And he said to them, well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus teaches us that riches tend to make us satisfied with this life instead of longing for him. With man, salvation is like a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. But with God, through his son Jesus Christ and his work, his life, death, and resurrection, all things are possible. We have a hope of salvation. Salvation is something man cannot accomplish. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't buy it. All we can do is receive it. You see, left to ourselves, we'll never make it into God's kingdom or inherit eternal life. Salvation has always been and will always be the divine accomplishment of his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. The question really is, and the question that was posed to the rich young ruler is, well, is Jesus worth it? I mean, really, when you take all the things that you have, And then you take Jesus, is he he really worth it? Is he worth giving up everything? I mean, do you really desire Jesus to have all of you? Or do you desire Jesus to be an add-on for you? Because what we like to do is we like to be good. And then we like to add on Jesus so we can get salvation. We don't really like to make him Lord. We don't really like to submit everything to him. We like to keep our own life and say, but I want to add on Jesus for a little eternal security. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Salvation is free, but the discipleship will cost you your life. Here's where I think many believers miss it. You see, we're satisfied to receive salvation without any sacrifice, we're satisfied to get into heaven without giving Jesus headship of our lives, we're satisfied with a faith that doesn't require any following of Jesus. Jesus didn't allow this wretch young ruler to believe that that was even a possibility. So he went away disheartened. Jesus loved him enough to give him the truth. The truth is you need Jesus for salvation. And apart from him, you can do nothing. The question really is, do you want Jesus or do you just want salvation? Because you can't pick and choose. Here's the last one, the third idol that we come across in this section of Scripture is the idol of family. The idol of family distorts our devotion. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. I love how Peter, he's always the one to speak up, isn't he? And so he sees this rich young ruler walk off disheartened, sorrowful because he's not willing to give up everything. And Peter goes, Well, we gave up everything, didn't we? What about us? Are we good enough? I mean, because if it's impossible to get into heaven, I want to know that I'm good enough. I want to know that I did the right thing. And he's like, look, I know what you gave up. I know what was your idol. I know what you held as most important in your life. And I saw you walk away from it to follow me. I saw you drop your nets. I saw you walk away from your wife. I saw you walk away from your families. I saw you say Jesus is more important than any good thing in this world. I saw it. And there's a reward. There's an eternal reward for you. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Peter was willing to leave everything. This idea is we can't let anything hinder us from faithfully following Christ, not even family. Kevin D. Young Says this, one of the acceptable idolatries among evangelical Christians is the idolatry of the family. Can I remind you what idols do? Idols control you. Is your calendar dictated more by family or your faith? Idols consume you. Is your identity more defined by your family or by your faith? Idols will condemn you. Is your family commitments pulling you away from your commitment to God? The point is, your commitment to family must not come before your commitment to God. Idols are typically good things that we make into God things. Therefore, we tend to justify our good idols through the lens of cultural Christianity. Did you know the number one source of which American Christians look for meaning and fulfillment in their lives is their family? In fact, when it comes to activities that provide the greatest deal of meaning and fulfillment, faith falls far behind spending time with family. Being outdoors, playing a sport, or taking up a new hobby. We even say things like, you know, family comes first. That's interesting because scripture doesn't say that. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus said this, whoever loves father, mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. These are very difficult things for us to swallow. This is why the rich young ruler lowered his head, disheartened and full of sorrow and walked away from Jesus because he knew that his idol had been exposed. And let me tell you, we can hide our idols with our good works. And they're good things. They're blessings from God. Wearsby says this, to the general public, the rich young ruler stood first and the poor disciples stood last. But God saw things from the perspective of eternity and the first became last while the last became first. The same is true today. To the general public, Those who have good morals, those who have money, materialism, and spend all their extra time with family seem to be the closest to God. But what if you had all of that and Christ was not ultimately Lord of your life? You would be last. So my questions to end with are, what idol have you allowed to control you, consume you, and ultimately condemn you? What good thing have you put before your faith? As a disciple of Christ, do others around you see a life of sacrifice for his kingdom or a life of accumulation for your kingdom? Because ultimately, disciples make disciples. Disciples make disciples. So what kind of disciple are you making? A disciple of behavior modification? Listen, You just need to be good. You need to follow these rules, act like this, treat people like this, be a good person. Disciples make disciples. Do you make disciples of moral conformity and moral modifications? Or do you make disciples of material gain and pleasure? Listen, let me tell you about this thing I bought. It's the best thing I've ever bought. and Like, you need to get you one of these because I don't know how I lived before I bought this thing because it has made my life way better. You, know, you ought to get one. Son, daughter, when you grow up, this is what you want. Let me tell you. You want this. This will bring happiness to your life. Disciples make disciples. What kind of disciples are you making? A disciple, a placing family calendar over your faith commitments? Because what happens when you do that is you teach your kid that they're more important than God. What you do is you raise somebody who will become an adult who puts God second. And I'm not talking, I'm the most non legalistic person probably in this room. You don't have to say amen to that. I'm not being legalistic. I'm telling you that we make disciples. And disciples are made by what we demonstrate, not just what we teach. And sometimes we hide our idols with our good works and we call it Christianity. Does God sit at the center of your heart? My prayer is that God would reveal our idols this morning, that we would repent even of our goodness. Thanks for listening. It is our prayer that this message has helped you grow in your walk with Christ. Please subscribe to hear new sermons